everyone. Welcome to sidetrack number four of Derailed Trains of Thought. First off, I want to apologize that regular episodes have been a little slower in coming um, since the beginning of the year. It's mainly my fault. I've been very preoccupied with schoolwork and this semester it's been harder for me to focus on school and podcasting at the same time. So that's one reason why, um, why the regular episodes have been a little slower in coming. But um, that doesn't mean that today's sidetrack isn't an interesting one. As Nick mentioned in our last episode, Brian Churchill, our mutual friend and film buff, gave Nick a lot of information about Alfred Hitchcock the last time Nick and Brian met and talked about Notorious. In fact, there was so much info that Brian had to say about Hitchcock that we decided to save some of it for a special sidetrack. And that's what you're going to hear today. This is probably going to be our longest sidetrack in history uh, because it's about an hour long, but it's a lot of good information. If you're interested in film history, I think you're really going to be uh, get it really interested in, in this. And especially if you've found our last episode a little too uh, geeky for you, uh, this one probably is a bit more in-depth at about really the world's most renowned film director. So with that said, I hope you enjoy. Here is Brian and Nick. All right. Hello, everyone. This is um, back here with Brian Scherschel to talk about a movie he's very fond of and which I had a chance to watch recently, and I am now also very fond of it, Notorious by Alfred Hitchcock. I guess, Brian, go ahead. I know you have a lot to say about this film. Uh, give us kind of a, some basic intro into Hitchcock in general. Uh, good to be back. Let's see. Alfred Hitchcock is definitely one of my favorite directors, although I, had, I do have quite a few. Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense. Notorious and many other films also, though, they show that he's also a master of romance. And that's one thing that I definitely want to try to get across. And this is a great example. He made 53 films in his entire career. First one in 1927, and the last one was in 1976. He was born in 1899 and died uh, in 1980. When Hitchcock started his career... He worked under German expressionist, that kind of school of directors and filmmaking. And Can you go ahead and define uh, German expressionism for those who might not know? Yeah, uh, the German expressionism, the, the height of German expressionism was uh, given from about 1919 to 1931, and that was sort of the golden age of German film. And German expressionism, the, at least the technique, a lot of it is about working within the frame, and it's all about framing, photographing, lighting, and the importance of, the, of, an, of an object, or the importance of the object that's on the screen. And in many ways, it's a style about space more than it is about time. Some of the directors that would be in German Expressionism would include uh, Fritz Lang, uh, F.W. Murnau, and a number of others. Another thing that Hitchcock did is that he also learned about what is called Russian constructivism. And that is all about, it's more about time rather than it is about space. And Russian constructivism is about the juxtaposition of shots. It's about cross cuts, it's about building and montage, and it's working from frame to frame instead of within the frame. And so that's the difference. Hitchcock blended these styles together 
And that was what made him such a good filmmaker in that he was able to combine building and montage along with uh, German expressionism and along with uh, other ho- other classic uh, like classic Hollywood style filming as well. So he, he was very good at blending. It does seem from the Hitchcocks I've seen that he can change his uh, how he goes about things to the subject matter. And it sounds like because he knew so many different styles and could, could combine them, he could move them back and forth as he needed to. Yes, and, and so when he was really big into pre-production as well, uh, and that's what made it so good, too. He was great with also filming the, the objective and the subjective point of view and switching back and forth between them, and that creates suspense, and it, gets, it brings the audience in, and it gets them to, it, to, get, it gets them to feel like they're there. And you can't have suspense unless, unless you know, there are a lot of prerequisites that are required in order to actually create suspense and actually have it come off. With Hitchcock, when he mixes the objective and the subjective, he's able to make the audience really be there, and you can actually watch characters thinking through things just by showing on the film what they're looking at and how they're putting things together. Many of Hitchcock's films were about order. Hitchcock was a very ordered man. He thrived off of order. He was a very ordered person. Many of his films are about losing control and the terror of losing control. He was a man who had many phobias. Uh, He was afraid of things such as heights, uh, law enforcement agents, police, all kinds of things. He even was afraid of egg yolks in that he did not like to see the yellow kind of just come up, you know, you know what I'm you yeah, know, so right. the the yellow, um, just kind of gooey, vis- yes. viscous. Mm-hmm. Yes, and there are actually images in his films in which egg yolks are actually used. I think To Catch a Thief is one, and uh, there's another one, too. So he channeled a lot of his own fears and phobias to help, I guess, make the audience feel the same way. Yes. When you say, when you say uh, um, Afraid of Heights, it reminds me of Vertigo, how he used that camera... Technique, which I think he invented. In yes, he he was he was great at inventing new techniques with film, and he was a very technical person. Uh, what you're referring to with Vertigo was the uh, uh, it was the, the simultaneous like zooming in and then dollying back of the camera at the same time, which made that very that that is what is called the Vertigo effect. Was when you pull the camera backwards physically while at the same time zooming in. And that was just one of the many things that he did. He was also really good with other technical things as well. He was a master at learning the technical aspects of things. All about, he had technical meetings before the next day of every shooting so that he would make sure that everything would go well. He learned all the technical aspects of filming in order to do things and create new effects. Hitchcock frequently created new techniques via film uh, including camera techniques like vertigo, like the vertigo effect, and innovations in three-strip Technicolor and in showing the versatility of the widescreen process known as VistaVision. Uh, he filmed a number of his films in, Vista, in VistaVision. I believe the first one was To Catch a Thief, if I'm not correct. And then that, he filmed on VistaVision for almost every film for quite a while, as did many other great directors. But he was extremely good at at technique and learning the technical, just everything. He learned, 
he learned the nuts and bolts of filming all the way back, and, and then he integrated it into his mind, which Tippi Hedren at one point said that his mind was like a computer, just synthesizing everything together and, and creating such a, a powerful image. And his films were all about taking the audience through a film emotionally. With his films, he would sometimes do a graph where he would kind of pick the, the audience up and then let the audience go. And it was sort of a graph that would just go up and down where he would take the audience through it and ramp things up and then pull it back and then ramp things forward again. And, and he, was, he was great with that. Hitchcock said the most important thing about the film is the script. Otherwise, the movie, you know, from the very beginning is a non-starter. So how did, he go, how did he go about getting his scripts then? Since it was so important to him, did he have certain people? He liked to work with actors that he liked over and over again, and that would also carry over to screenwriters, technical people, cameramen, especially photographers, as well as people like Edith Head, who she was one of the greatest costume designers in Hollywood. She worked on many of his films. During the golden age of Hitchcock's film era, the, the greatest one went from 1951 to 1964, and he had basically the same director of photography that whole time. His name was Robert Burks, and he was a really genius photographer. With regards to the scripts, he worked intensely with the script writer in the pre-production process. Hitchcock was very much into pre-production. So much so that he said by the end of pre-production, when you actually start filming the movie, he's practically bored by that time because everything has been planned down that well and everything has is going to move like clockwork so easily. Hitchcock had a great amount of control over the script. He sometimes uh, worked with script writers that he didn't like, and he sometimes had to ask to leave just because they had creative differences. And it's because they didn't kind of, a lot of them, they kind of just didn't get Hitchcock and, and where he was coming from with the story. They had one idea of the story, but he said, no, we, and kind of said, let's keep moving here. Hitchcock was a very good artist as well. He was one of the first big directors to really use storyboarding in an extensive way. He was very good at storyboarding. He was one of the first big masters of it. Some of the great people Alfred Hitchcock collaborated with for screenwriting include Ben Hecht, uh, which uh, he did Notorious, as well as, uh, I believe, a couple of others. Also, Thornton Wilder, uh, John Steinbeck, Leon Uris, Samuel Taylor, John Michael Hayes, Charles Bennett, Evan Hunter, and Ernest Lehman. And I should mention for our audiences that John Steinbeck is... Yes, and he, he wrote the treatment for one of Hitchcock's films, and it was such a good treatment that it ended up uh, as, a, as a full script. That was for uh, 1944's Lifeboat, which uh, he did with 20th Century Fox. It's the only film he did with 20th Century Fox. It was a really, it's a really great production, um, and, and the script is very solid. Although Hitchcock was good with technique, he said that technique that draws attention to itself is bad technique. I like that because there's some. I think there's some directors nowadays who could learn that. Yes, and some of the effects are just so big that it totally calls attention to itself and just pulls you out of the movie almost in a way. It has to really mix well together uh, with everything else. After the pre-production process, Hitchcock would make his films and he would rarely look through the viewfinder in the camera 
just because he knew what the camera was already shooting. He didn't need to really look into the viewfinder. Another director that was like this would include John Ford, uh, one of the greatest American directors. He also did not look into the viewfinder very much when he was actually making the film because everything was planned so well down. So a lot of the things that he did during the actual production process was basically make sure the actors were doing their full, you know, working at their full potential and that making sure that the set was, was very ordered. Hitchcock's films, on the set of his films, they were some of the most ordered and quiet and calm sets that you could be on. Everything was very calm and ordered, and everyone did their best. That was another big thing with Hitchcock, is that when it didn't matter if you were the biggest star that was working with Hitchcock on a film, it didn't matter if you were the screenwriter or all the way down to the lowest employees in the hierarchy of of the set when every when people did a Hitchcock film everybody knew that they were going to put in their absolute best everybody knew that they were going to try their hardest and and really do their absolute best for Hitchcock because they all knew what was expected Hitchcock insisted upon more complex characters characters that have complexity ambiguity depth in other words people who are human it makes the audience identify with characters' feelings, and you, ha- and you can't have suspense at all if the audience isn't able to identify and care about the characters. Hitchcockian villains are rarely cardboard cutouts. They often have redeeming qualities, and Notorious is no exception. That's true. I mean, from the Hitchcocks I've seen, and I've seen in all of them by any means, the ambiguity of the characters is very makes it very intriguing. You never quite know... We know where they stand, but not quite what they might be willing to do. Yes, and that goes back to the fear of losing control, because so many of his films are about the main... A lot of times it's about the main character possibly losing control and and trying to gain control and order by the end of the film. It is really the biggest gaffe and really the biggest embarrassment in the history of the Motion Picture Association of America that Hitchcock never won an Oscar. He was nominated for the Oscar for Best Director uh, a few times. He never won, though. He did, he did get an Oscar, though. It, towards the very end of his life, he received an honorary Lifetime Achievement Oscar, but he never won an Oscar. And, of course, this is just unbelievable in, in days like this, and especially around the 1960s or so, there was a big reevaluation of Hitchcock's films in that... People like Francois Truffaut went back to his films and looked at them and realized where all of them were coming from and how well they worked and how perfect they were put together. Hitchcock's films were, the appreciation for them went way up uh, once these critical, once critical acclaim like this came in and once books were written by people like Truffaut who really said, oh my gosh, this is a lot more than what anybody thought they were looking at. When, and that goes into another thing with Hitchcock, is that Hitchcock's films beg for repeated viewings. His films improve with each viewing, and a new layer of complexity shows itself. His films are very well known for having this characteristic. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, growing up, I only knew Hitchcock basically from Psycho, which is what everyone talks about, which, having seen other ones, is not the best example. I mean, it's not a bad example of Hitchcock by any means, but... It's not traditional Hitchcock either. 
Right. Hitch, uh, Psycho was in uh, – it was almost a direct attempt by Hitchcock to outdo a film by a French director named Henri Georges Clouseau, and he made a film called uh, Les Diaboliques from 1955, and it was a very – it's a very Hitchcockian film when you look at the story. It's a very Hitchcockian story. So when he made Psycho, it was a kind of direct challenge back to Clouseau to say, look at what I can make. And also with Psycho, he reverted to black and white. And that's another thing. He had his TV crew from Alfred Hitchcock Presents actually filming that. He actually didn't have, I believe, I, he did not have Robert Burks doing the photography. But if he did, he was just there and the TV crew you know, made up the rest of the people. But it gave Psycho, a lot of it was to give you that TV horror thing where it for movies like that, we're not very good at that point, like on television and everything. And so Hitchcock thought, well, what if I made a film that had the same kind of look to it, but in fact was extremely good and just blew everybody away. And so I'll show you what I can do with this medium. And, and because by the sixties, he had done so many great things that he had become a household name and he could basically just say he, he liked to, to play with the audience and say, well, you expected this, but instead I'm going to give you this. He liked to, to, to change the audience because he didn't want them to just be expecting Psycho year after year and because then that wouldn't be all that good anyway. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, you can tell great directors like to push, at least it seems like Hitchcock likes to push boundaries, even himself. I mean, he'll keep changing up how he does things, do, you know, basically pretend the camera doesn't uh, cut like he does in Rope, or you've said Lifeboat is basically a one scene, uh, not one scene, a one location. Yes, bas yeah, bas yes, it's all filmed on the, uh, what was it, the back lot of uh, 20th Century Fox Studios in Hollywood, and, and uh, the entire thing was a gigantic water tank with uh, all of the setup and everything to make it for Lifeboat. So it's very so in that way it kind of is like rear window where it has a restricted kind of set area. Only lifeboat is even more restricted because it's a fifteen foot long lifeboat instead of an entire uh, you know inner area of a uh, of a large uh, residential area. And it does seem like a very interesting thing for a director to basically put constraints on himself to see if he can tell a story in this yes, way. Yes, Hitchcock was all about he so much of him was about breaking boundaries, whether it was a technical boundary. Sometimes it was a censorship boundary even. Which we'll get to here in Notorious, correct? Yes, and that was a, a big one. He he had he didn't have too many issues with the censors. I mean, there were other directors that outdid him in that area, but Hitchcock would always be a little bit more subtle with trying to skirt along some of the boundaries that uh, were created, uh, such as the Hayes Code. So before we get to that, let's go ahead and introduce our audience to uh, basically the blurb, the summary of Notorious, so they have some idea of what the storyline is. Notorious is from 1946, what I would say is one of the biggest years of film, just like Best Years of Our Lives and many other films from 1946 that make it such a landmark year. Hitchcock loved one-word titles, and Notorious is a great one-word title. It draws the audience in. It has a it has a built-in amount of mysteriousness to it, and it draws the audience in. He was great with one-word titles, such as Psycho, or Vertigo, Vertigo, yes, yeah, Saboteur, Lifeboat, Rope, Sabotage. 
There are there are many of them. He was great with with making with avoiding these very clunky uh, titles for that that sometimes movies can have. Notorious refers to the character of Ingrid Bergman, uh, and she is notorious. That's where the title comes from. Notorious stars Ingrid Bergman, Cary Grant, and Claude Rains. I would say that that's possibly one of the best combinations of actors that I've ever seen in a movie, period. There's so much that is brought with that combination. Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman did not, they, haven't, they hadn't done a film together before Notorious. And Cary Grant was already a huge, huge star at the time, and so was Ingrid Bergman. And the, the chemistry between the two characters go, is really well in Notorious. They have a great chemistry. Claude Rains, I, he's one of my favorite actors, period. I, I just really love his acting as well as his, his voice and just everything that comes with him. He brings so much presence into a movie. Getting back to the title of Notorious... Ingrid Bergman is notorious, and meaning that she is known widely and in a generally unsavory and or unusual way. Her character's name is Alicia Huberman. Alicia is related to the name Alice, and could in fact be a reference to Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the case could be made that there could be a little connection, or at least a, an allusion to it. Uh, her father is a German who recently was convicted of treason against the United States, for helping out the Nazis during World War II. This is, of course, 1946. It's the year right after the war ended. So he's been convicted of treason, and her life is out of control. In the original story for Notorious, her character was, in fact, a prostitute. And instead of that, because of the code and, and the way that the code made movies kind of conform to a certain moral, you know, within certain constraints... Instead, the story just refers that she has a lot of conquests, that it obviously implies that she's sexually loose, and uh, she is also a heavy drinker, and she has trust issues with men. So there are some of the negative aspects that make her notorious. On the other hand, she has positive characteristics as well, including the fact that, well, she has an endearing personality at heart, and that is very evident in the script. She is an American citizen. She isn't involved directly with helping the Nazis. It was her father who was. She is wary of the press, and she's physically beautiful in only the way that Ingrid Bergman can be. In the way that Hitchcock casted Bergman, he subverted Ingrid Bergman's type. He casted her against type. Her type is what? Usually the, the character that she played in Casablanca a uh, forthright and sober person. Uh, that, that is her persona, and that was her persona uh, as far as the way she was depicted in films before Notorious. The next character is T.R. Devlin, played by Cary Grant. Cary Grant is, of course, handsome, charming, immediately likable. He almost never played a villain. I don't think he ever played a villain in any movie in his whole career. He is. This is about the closest one because he plays a definitely a morally ambiguous character, but he's definitely not. A, he's definitely not the villain. Cary Grant started his career in acrobatics and in comic pantomime on the British stage, and it really goes to show as to how well he can react to things and how well he can show emotions just by showing just a little bit of expression 
in his face, just the right expression that the camera can catch, and it catches so emo- so much emotion. A lot of his acting is an understated acting style, meaning less is more. He was a master at making the slightest movement and getting a huge impact out of the result. Cary Grant is known for playing sympathetic characters, and so Hitchcock is also subverting Cary Grant's persona by making his character an FBI agent, T.R. Devlin, a name which denotes what? Devil or devilish. His mission is to convince Alicia to help the FBI to uncover the lead financier of, of Nazis who have escaped to Brazil, and the lead financier is Alex Sebastian, who is played by Claude Rains. Her job is to go in and win over Alex Sebastian, who she was at least familiar with because of his connections to her father. And this is all related to the IG Farben Industries, which uh, were big, of course, in the uh, war machine of the uh, Nazi war machine. So the FBI here even kind of has an unsavory role because they're putting Alicia in harm's way in order to accomplish a mission. J. Edgar Hoover actually objected a little bit to the depiction of the FBI as in this kind of way, although it did it did get passed and get into the film. But there was a little bit of uh, reluctance, even on the FBI's part, to say, you know, we kn- this isn't exactly depicting us as the in the best in the best light possible. Devlin is not an all good or all bad character either. He's secretive. He has issues with women, and in this story, he has to use. Alicia in order to get what the FBI wants. He also smokes a lot, which relates back to devilish symbolism, as at least it can in in classic film. Cary Grant's character also puts up fronts of being self-possessive as kind of a defense mechanism. So Hitchcock has taken a masterfully graceful character and made his character rather static, morally paralyzed, and silent in a film noir kind of way. This film isn't exactly a film noir in the classic sense, just because there's so much romance involved, there's so much suspense involved, there's so much every, everything else involved with this film. Hitchcock was great at synthesizing things like this and, and, and making it way bigger th- than what it can be. And so this is anything but a straight-up film noir. The last thing with Cary Grant is how well he reacts as well as his acting. His reacting is great to watch in this film. He, his movements, his eyes, his, his body movement, his body language, it's perfect and understated at the same time. Grant's body language is perfect in this movie. You can tell just by looking at his body language practically what his emotions are, and they all fit perfectly into the story. Hitchcock said that the only actor that he truly ever loved was Cary Grant. The third character is uh, Claude Rains. When Notorious was uh, created, Hitchcock was still under a seven-year contract with the legendary producer David O. Selznick. It went from 1940 to 1947, and so it was a seven-year contract. But this was not produced by Selznick. Selznick, at this point, was producing a movie called... It was a Western called A Duel in the Sun, starring Gregory Peck. It went way over budget... So Selznick had to lend out actors and other talent to other studios in order to make money in order to help go into Duel in the Sun, which ended up being one of the most, I believe it's on that list of the 100 most hilariously bad movies ever. It didn't turn out well. So Selznick, had, so Selznick what he did is he lent out Hitchcock, 
Bergman and Grant, and I believe also the screenwriter Ben Hecht, as a package to RKO Studios. So they got him. So RKO acquired uh, that talent from Selznick. At the same time, when Selznick lent out the talent to RKO, he was adamant that Claude Rains be included in the film. Rains was a uh, contract actor under Warner Brothers at the time, but he wanted Rains's acting and and care and he he knew that he wanted Claude Rains to play this role and I'm glad that he did that because Rains is perfect in this role. Claude Rains plays the a very perfect Hitchcockian villain in this film. He's classy, he's refined, he's at the same time he he has a lot of other negative things. It very much recalls I'd say to maybe James Mason's character in North by Northwest because James Mason was so suave and debonair as well. And while Claude Rains is the, is the officially sanctioned villain in Notorious, he's not all good or all bad e- either. He's helping escaped Nazis, and he's funding them, but that's it. He's just funding them, and he's not obviously as deep in as he could be, like, a la you know, Schindler's List or, or some, hor- you know, some of the horrific characters that came out of that. And so he is in a gray area as well. He's in a fix as well in this movie, and uh, hopefully the Nazi's stigma doesn't get too much in the way of the fact that you can see the complexity in, in his character as well. Some of the redeeming factors that he has include the fact that he unconditionally loves. He's the one in the movie who does unconditionally love. He's also a victim of the FBI's plot. His name, Alex Sebastian, can also possibly denote a relationship to Saint Sebastian. So, and there are various other qualities that he has and characteristics that he can, in a way, win over the audience, even in a role like this, which is interesting. Yeah, you actually, there's several times in the movie where you feel bad for the guy, and I won't reveal why because it kind of spoils on the movie, but at least two instances I can think of. Yes, and and when he discovers Alicia through the the plot, he his character does undergo a change. It undergoes a positive change, in fact, and then and then later on things work out differently. But it shows that he does have have those characteristics that do make him somewhat redeeming. Where and so all three of the main characters in this in this film aren't they aren't all good. They aren't all bad, and that's life as well. I mean, that's a lot of what life is too. And so it's a very relatable movie. So the characters are obviously very Hitchcock with their ambiguity and their light and dark mixed. What other, I guess, fingerprints of Hitchcock's uh, show up in this movie? First I would mention is Hitchcock's mixing of the objective and the subjective point of view. One of the scenes rather early on in the film is a car scene involving Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. You get the objective shot viewing the two, you know the two of them from the front of the vehicle next to each other and then intermixed with that you get the subjective view of what Ingrid's character Elisa Huberman is seeing as she's driving and that mixes in the suspense and Hitchcock was really good with with driving scenes he had he had a definite technique down. It involved the car, and then it involved the back projection behind there. H- Hitchcock really preferred to work on 
a set as opposed to on location when he filmed. He was not a fan of filming on location because filming on location, especially in the early days when he was making his earlier films, it was really hard to get the lighting right because everything was so variable with that. And he wanted to get a, a, as perfect of an image up there as possible. And this also relates back to German Expressionism because German Expressionism was all about the subject and the lighting and getting the subject to look the way you want it to and getting it that refined. German Expressionism can be seen all throughout Hitchcock's films, and the, I would say every one of his films include plenty of German Expressionist film as its base, and then, of course, mixing that then with, with other styles. But the Hitchcock driving scenes were, they went all the way through his last film, let alone uh, every other film that he did. So many of his films involve driving scenes. And so that's what a typical Hitchcockian driving scene is like. Another thing that Hitchcock does in his films is that he gives importance to objects. With German Expressionism, the best thing to do is to give a threatening or a, a big amount of meaning, at least, to an object, and the more mundane the object, the better. And so it would be finding an object that is visual, palpable, and tangible. And then you give that object enormous stature, point, and meaning. When you see this movie, you can very easily pick out the objects that you did that with, especially one in particular. Yes, with the key. And then, and then the other big object is with uh, a bottle of wine. Like a bottle, the bottle of wine is a, is another very big symbol. And it is amazing how much emotion is attached to those two things. I mean, whole the whole plot at that point ro revolves around those two things. Yes, and the symbolism is the symbolism of these objects carries a great weight as well. Making a very usual object into something that could be a very threatening or even a lethal weapon uh, is is a certain. Is a certain, you have to have a certain craft in order to be able to do it right, because you can't just think, well, a knife, because a knife is already something that is threatening or can be, or can be lethal. But with the more mundane objects and attaching meaning to it, another, another one would be a cup of coffee. That's another symbol that also carries a little bit more meaning. Uh, alcohol is, also carries a motif. There is an alcohol motif that is carried throughout this film. Uh, one of his other big, big films where there's an alcohol motif that carries on would be Vertigo, in which the characters are, are constantly coming back to uh, drinking. But with Notorious, the motif is even deeper because the symbolism is more deep as well. Another thing Hitchcock did was that he gave architecture thematic value. And the house that Notorious takes place in is the perfect house to give all of that meaning to. Because the house is huge. It's full of rooms. It almost is like the world of Alice in Wonderland and that you just keep going trying to find what you're looking for. Hitchcock also expertly photographs the house and the mansion in this, in this film. The mansion almost is a character. It's oversized, it's complex, it's mysterious. It almost has a life of its own, it's so big. Hitchcock was also great with staircases. And Notorious, it possibly has the biggest staircase sequence in any of his films. But he loved staircases in his films and the symbolism that they, that they were attached to. Because doing, rather than doing something just on the floor or something... that. 
the staircase is, is one of the devices that he used throughout his films to indicate tension, suspense, and, and movement, and the plot forwarding itself as well. Um, you've been talking about the house and the staircase and how uh, everything's planned out, all the scenes are just right. I know that there's a scene that you really enjoy, this very long zoom um, that actually in, incorporates the object that he's using, the key... And then the you know the kind of the size of the house. So if you want to maybe talk about that briefly, you know that's a big Hitchcockian scene there. Yes, that shot is a it's a combination dolly slash moving shot, and what it starts is all the way up at the top of of this big room, right above way above the staircase, and then it keeps zooming in, and and the dolly keeps going forward. And it goes all the way down the room. It's a, it's a very long, sweeping, lyrical movement of the camera. So we're going from an extreme long shot to an extreme close-up. But he goes all the way from the top of the room, all the way down to a key in Ingrid Bergman's hand. Now, the technology for this kind of shot did not even exist. They actually built a wooden track for the camera to be on so that it could actually go down that far. So the technology hadn't even existed for this kind of shot up until this point. That was how radical and how forward Hitchcock was with the way that he envisioned things in his head. He had, when he made films, he had everything in his head practically before the film actually started being produced. So yeah, so that shot incorporates a lot of Hitchcock. You know, you got the object, you have the the technical shot that's never been done before. And mixing in, you have thematic value at the same time. Exactly. And it is a very, I mean, I didn't, I remember it now, I didn't quite catch it at the time, because I'm just so engrossed in the movie, the first time watching it, I'm not paying attention to how their, things are happening. But I do remember that sh the, the ending shot of that, with the key being very imprinted on my mind. Yes, he uses this, uh, I know he used this in Marnie as well, uh, where, he, where it was a dolly, that just kept going and going and going all the way up to a door that someone was going to enter. And, of course, the person entering the door is a big deal. So, yes, Hitchcock was, was great with, with creating this kind of feeling, along with being able to introduce things like Russian constructivism and the juxtaposition of shots and switching back and forth between things in a more rapid way in order to show the tension, in order to increase the tension and multiply it. I know another thing this movie's at least vaguely and famous for is for uh, the way Hitchcock skirted the Hayes Code. What was the Hayes Code? It was a moral code for films that was brought in. I believe this brought was brought in in the 30s, I want to say at some point. The creator of it was a man named Will Hayes. It was all about making sure that movies were kept in check as far as just the moral codes of the time. And so that's why you have a restriction on the amount of time that two characters can kiss on screen. The rule for the Hayes Code was that a kiss could last no longer than 30 seconds. At 30 seconds, kissing went from romantic to unseemly. And that was just the built-in definition. What Hitchcock did was that he skirted the Hayes Code in a very interesting way, which ended up becoming legendary Hollywood history kind of material. What he was able to do is he was able to extend the on-screen kiss to about 2 minutes and 45 seconds. The way that he did that was, and this is the balcony kissing scene between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. It's all one take, first of all, which is 
which involves a lot of blocking, and the reason and blocking is movement that is programmed for the characters that they have to do. And so it starts out, they start, they kiss, and then they they break the kiss, and then they ins- then inserted is a little bit of dialogue, like what they're going to you know make for dinner and just various little things like this that really are innocuous. And then they go back to the kiss, and then release the kiss, and then back again and back and forth. It's quite a scene, actually. It's quite an interesting scene to watch, just how they kind of dance, actually, around the kissing and the the, ba- the whole set. Back, you know, out to the balcony and talking about stuff and moving the plot along and kissing. And it's a, it's quite a quite a scene to put together. Yes, and I can, I can just imagine being in Grant's or Bergman's position where you have to get the blocking right. You have to get your head, you know, moved to the right place. You have to pull the kiss back at the right time. You have to say your line at the right time. And the, the, the combination and the, the cumulative amount of, of, of things that have to be done just by the actors is pretty amazing because it just keeps going and then the camera follows them and tracks them into the, you know, a little bit more to the room. Then he actually gets on the phone and just all of these things just keep on going. It's a lot to learn. It, it, I would say they, it was a little bit of a hard scene for them to film, but it ended up becoming one of the greatest romantic scenes in Hollywood history. It's interesting. I watched this movie with my wife, and she's always a little suspicious of black and white movies, just because and she, there's some that she enjoys, but she's always suspicious of them. And she really enjoyed this movie. And we were talking about afterwards, it's interesting, with as much sexual tension as is in the plot, you don't see anything. I mean, this kind of extended kiss... What always impresses me with Hitchcock is how much is implied. It seems like almost half the plot's just implied beneath the surface. At least half the plot. Yes, and that's one reason why his films are so... Why the watchability of his films is so high. Because it's almost like you're discovering like a second track or something, you know, of, of a At least a second, if not a third. Yeah, if not a third or fourth. <laughs> like with Vertigo, it ends up being like a third or fourth track of just meaning and, and deepness that's put in there that you have to just keep thinking through. But Notorious is also great, as are most of his other films, with repeatability. Just a look from an actor can mean so much in a Hitchcock film. And that, again, relates to German expressionism and about showing what you mean. That's one reason why Hitchcock was not all that keen on method actors and on the method. Because with the method, so much of what the actor was doing was internalized in their mind. You know, they were thinking about what was going on inside their head, but then that kind of made them not really pay that much importance to what they should actually be showing because the movie is about what you're showing because frankly I don't care what's going on in the actor's head I want to make sure what the actor is conveying more than what's going on in his head at one point I believe it was Tippi Hedren uh, she was uh, talking with Hitchcock about doing a scene I'm not sure if it was it was either Birds or Marnie I'm not sure which one but she asked him what she should be thinking when she uh, was starting out uh, the beginning of, of filming a scene. And he said, my dear, is called acting. And he just made her focus on that. Hitchcock was great with making over women in his films. Think about Kim Novak in Vertigo, or think about Ingrid Bergman in Notorious, and how she is put into the plot 
of the film and how she's made over in order to win over Alex Sebastian. So Brian, I know, I know that you really enjoy this movie and I really enjoyed watching it. And then there's a lot of, it's kind of iconic Hitchcock. It's, this is a good window into his style, into the types of movies he makes. How would you sell this in like a, in a quick spiel to someone? This movie is about the crime of thinking that you're not worthy of love and the importance of trusting that you're worthy of love. Love and falling in love is, in fact, a matter of suspense. And that's probably the best thing that I can think of to characterize this movie. I really like that a lot. It might cut off there. But I really like that a lot because after talking about all the technical stuff, that's what really matters is the characters and the story and the and the romance. The, this movie is not, the FBI part is not enough to carry the movie. It's the romance that makes it work. Yes, a lot of Hitchcock films, they have the one obvious plot, but then there's so much that's going on underneath, and a lot of it involves romance on, on some level and the suspense of romance. Uh, Trouble with Harry's like that, where um, there's a whole romantic subplot. I mean, it's not the main thing, but it adds a lot to the movie. Yes, the, yeah, there's actually there are actually two romantic subplots uh, taking place at once, and it's great how that how that ends up at the end. And and yet the main plot is about Harry, but there's so much going on that's really outside, and that's the real movie. And with Notorious, the real movie is the romance. This film is very different, even though it's film noir in a way. It's very different from Double Indemnity because Double Indemnity is more of a straight up film noir that the romance is just it's not an afterthought, but it's kind of just mixed in with everything else. With with Hitchcock, he is able to mix suspense and romance so well in Notorious that the romance ends up being the part that you take away. There's another movie from the landmark year of 1946 called The Big Sleep. And that is directed by Howard Hawks, and it stars Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And I believe that was the first movie they ever did together, which, of course, they ended up together in real life. That is what I would refer to as a hard-boiled film noir. What I mean by hard-boiled film noir is that there is kind of that Im- that almost, even though this was before the beat generation, it's kind of like an almost beat attitude in the film in which there's plenty in which there are all of these unseemly things going on such as murder and pornography and drugs and sex and just all of these things but the big sleep it has all these things in it but of course because of the haze code it's not really shown it's all just referred to in so many odd or just circuitous ways that it, that all of this thing all of the things plug into when it, when it, and going back to hard boiled like a hard boiled film film noir is where lots of people can get killed and the main characters just kind of act like they went and got a cup of coffee and that was their day <laughs> and the big sleep is like that it's it's a hard boiled film noir and there's it, it's it's a great film in its own right of course but it's a very different film noir than, than Notorious or Double Indemnity. And, and The Big Sleep kind of makes up the other side of film noir, where there's all of this really kind of low-down activity taking place. I remember watching The Big Sleep, and after I watched it the first time, I had to look up what it was I had just watched, which I have very rarely had to do that with very many films at all. But I had to look up and say, what, what was going on? just because everything was so well hidden 
are not well hidden, but just everything was under the radar. After I read the plot and I thought, wait a minute, this involved sex, drugs, pornography, a homosexual relationship, murder, and all these other things. And I thought, did I just watch that? And so, <laughs> and so the, the Hayes Code can be really restrictive if you want to make a movie like that. But the Hayes Code with Under Notorious, you, you get to subvert it in a, a nice kind of stylistic way. Devil Indemnity has quite a bit of suspense in it, too. But it's still the notorious, the, the romance just really gives, that's what the movie really is about. I have seen all of Hitchcock's masterpieces more than once. And I've seen every one of his films since 1936. The only group of his films that I haven't really been too acquainted with are his very earliest silent films, the first seven that he made at the very beginning of his film career, although I did see the masterpiece of that one, which is his first one from 1927, The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog. After that, his biggest works include uh, his first sound film called Blackmail from 1929, which is a very underrated film. Some other big ones that he made before he came to America would include The 39 Steps from 1935. He also did a masterwork from 1936 called Sabotage, which is based on a story by Joseph Conrad. And that is also a very underrated film. It's one of his best ones that he did from the 30s at all. Another big one is The Lady Vanishes from 1938. Then he came to America, and I would say the films that are just as high caliber as Notorious, just because I don't really have a favorite Hitchcock film, but films that I would also include in that cat in the highest caliber of Hitchcock of Hitchcock's films would be Rebecca from 1940, Saboteur from 1942, Shadow of a Doubt 1943, which is one of my personal favorites, and it's also Hitchcock's favorite. Uh, he said it was his favorite numerous times. Lifeboat from 1944, Rope from 1948, Strangers on a Train from 1951, Rear Window from 1954. To Catch a Thief from 1955, The Trouble with Harry from 1955, The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956, Vertigo from 1958, North by Northwest from 1959, Psycho from 1960, The Birds from 1963, and from 1964, Marnie, which I consider Hitchcock's last truly great classic film. He did four others after Marnie, the last two, uh, Frenzy and Family Plot, Hitchcock really went out with a bang. Uh, he did. He really made two great ones at the end too, but they're just not as classical because they're from the uh, early to to late or early to mid 1970s, which was after the so many changes had gone through in the 60s to films. <laughs> 